Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 326th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Erica Pauly. Erica is the founder and owner of Track That Advisor, a consulting and coaching firm based in Gilbert, Arizona, that helps advisory firms track and then improve upon their marketing results. What's unique about Erica, though, is how she built a series of spreadsheet tools to measure the details of each step of her advisory firm's marketing funnel, from lead generation to each meeting the sales process to client onboarding and getting initial revenue with the firm, and then turned it into a series of tools that any advisory firm can use to evaluate how their marketing is performing, where it needs to improve, and how they compare to the average advisory firm as a benchmark. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, through a series of Google Sheets, Erica helps advisory firms begin to track each of the steps in their marketing funnel, analyze how those steps are in turning into a lead into a client, and then develop the strategies to help them improve those metrics. Why Erica focuses on five key marketing metrics, stick rate, close rate, average client size, pending days, and cost per client to quickly gain an overall picture of an advisory firm or individual advisor's marketing process, and then again, compare those numbers to benchmarking data to see where improvements should be made first. And why Erica ultimately built an additional tool on top of her spreadsheets that she calls the Tracker Genie that helps advisory firms quickly spot gaps in their own data and fix them. Because in the end, it's not just about tracking the marketing data, but helping firms to actually do what it takes to input and maintain their data in the first place. We just talk about how while working in a marketing role in an advisory firm, Erica began to track data on their individual advisors' marketing efforts internally because she realized she didn't have the data to support her suggestions for the firm's strategic planning and decided to start measuring how the firm was performing so that she could validate her recommendations with actual evidence. How after moving to another state because of a job opportunity for her husband, Erica was contacted by her former firm that she had tracked data for to ask her to continue doing the work as a contractor and made her realize that there's a real demand for this specific type of work and ultimately inspired her to found Track That Advisor as a business. And why Erica still deliberately chooses to use Google Sheets to track data instead of a standalone software application as it allows her to customize layouts for individual firms and makes it easier for support staff to navigate instead of asking them to learn yet another whole new software platform. And be certain to listen to the end, where Erica shares how, as a self-proclaimed introvert and people pleaser, she's learned to become more comfortable with having difficult conversations with advisors about their strategies and how they are or are not performing. Why Erica hasn't taken the role of CEO in her own firm and has instead given that role to one of her trusted employees because she recognizes that her strengths lie in analyzing data and coaching others, and she needed someone in the role that has the drive and ability to help the firm keep growing. And how Erica learned the hard way the importance of not only finding employees that are the right fit, but having detailed processes and workflows so that as the firm grows, she can ensure that she's maintaining firm culture and business execution and ensure that the firm can continue to grow into her long-term vision and beyond. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Erica Pauly. Welcome, Erica Pauly, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm so excited to be here. I'm, I'm really excited about today's episode and, and getting to 
I, I talk about, dare I say, nerd out for a bit on marketing data. Uh, not just marketing strategies, but marketing data. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a funny thing. We So we've done this uh, research study on advisor marketing through Kits' platform. We, we've been through two cycles of it. We'll be doing our uh, – uh, our third version of it next spring, uh, where, you know, like we go to advisors and we ask her just, you know, some fairly straightforward information. It's like, how many new clients did you get and how much revenue did it generate? And like, what, what marketing channels were you engaged in to generate these clients? Like which clients came from which channels? And to me, like just fairly straightforward data. So you can say like, well, you know, I, I did this event and I got this many clients and then like I did this strategy, this like uh, website thing and I got this many clients. And what we find every time we do the study uh, is it is really hard for most advisors to answer what, candidly, I don't feel like are terribly challenging questions <laughs> around just how many clients did you get and where did you get them from? Because most of us have no tracking for it. Like, we know it's not even we don't have data. Like, we don't have any tracking for it. We don't have any systems to keep track of where are clients coming from and where is new business coming from. So, that, you know, nerds like me can then do marketing studies to report out what's working and even just for us internally so we can figure out what's working so we know here's the thing to double down on and, mm-hmm. and here's the thing to dial back on. And so I know you have spent many years now like literally building out like tools and the platform for <laughs> advisors to uh, to track data about what's going on with their marketing. And so frankly, I'm just really excited to talk like nerdy talk about marketing data and, and all the opportunities that come when you actually start keeping track of what's actually working or not as you're trying to grow your advisory business. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited too. I was, I was telling my husband, I'm like, no one knows what I do, you know? And I'm so excited that you get excited about these same things because people never remember what I do. They're always like, Oh, how's your work? <laughs> I'm like, it's fantastic, but I'm not going to go into it because it's real complex, but it's so fun being with a fellow data person. So yeah, let's start the conversation. Well, let's, let's start right there. So for, for an advisor audience that hopefully gets it a little bit more than our, our general social circles, like, what do you do? I know. I I feel like it is my job to kind of rewrite the narrative of data analytics, data storytelling for financial advisors. So I own a company called Track That Advisor. And what we're doing there is, yes, we have a platform. We build trackers for advisors to track all their marketing stuff. So where is the lead coming from? What are we spending on it? What's happening in the sales cycle? The business that we write from it. Um, so then they have a place for it. Then we're providing dashboards and pretty charts and reports. But then I'm also analyzing it for them. So it's kind of a three-part system, right? Like we, we create the area to track it. We give them their reports. And then I'm coming in on the backside and saying, all right, this is what they mean. And if you don't have one of those three steps, it's really, really hard to hit goals. And it's really hard to even know what your goals should be. And that is what we do at Track That Advisor is really equipping them with the tools to track it, helping them see it visually, and then explaining it to them so that they can pivot and move and shift and you know, make sure they're hitting goals or th- giving permission to change them. So, so help us then get a little bit more granular of like, really, like, what are you, what are you measuring? What are you tracking? Like, how does this work? 
we are tracking from the moment a lead sets an appointment. We are getting the high level numbers. Let's say you do a dinner seminar and we say, great, how many mailers did you send? You know, what is the number of people that registered or showed up at that point? At that level, I just want numbers. Once they set an appointment and they get on your calendar, we're we're actually following that lead and looking at historical data, what they do from day one. When is the appointment? Did they keep it? Did they set a second appointment or were they qualified? You know, looking at their qualified or not. And that depends on the office. Some don't do that. Moving to a second, moving to a third. Did they become a client? And then once they say yes, and we do the apps, we're following the entire application process. So how long is it taking from the day that they said yes to actually submitting it? Um, And that's on the insurance side, but also looking at managed money. How long is that taking? Um, And then how long does the entire process from commitment of yes through getting it issued, paid, delivered, and then what happens thereafter? So really looking at the marketing side of things, um, we don't dive too much into product-specific stuff. But looking at from day one, they say they're interested and what happened with them. And then all the reporting is looking at it by marketing funnel. If you're a multiple advisor office, we're looking at it by advisor, right? What is the percentage of production this advisor is bringing in? What's their stick rate, their close rate? What are your ROIs? So we can dive really, really granular into all of that stuff once the tracking itself is coherent, basically. Well, I'm I'm struck as you're describing that just... Even the, yeah, I, I don't mean this is a negative way for advisors that are struggling with tracking even at this level, but like even the most basic data, like how many people contacted you last year of those, how many were actually qualified prospects? So we can get down to like how many people we talked to that really might've been a good fit. And of the people you talked to that were qualified prospects, how many of them actually became clients? And even if I, when I talked to a lot of advisors about What's your close rate? I hear a lot of like, like it's pretty good. It's about fifty percent. Like, <laughs> well, like cool. Like, about fifty percent could be like fifty-five or seventy-five or ninety-five. Like, what does it actually come out to be when you do the math? I'm like, oh, I've never done the math. I don't have that data. Yeah, so, I just sort of know. Like, I feel like more than half the people I talk to become clients. Like, so at some level, that's cool. But I, I think as you highlight well, um, when you start trying to go, well, a just sometimes when we actually look at the data, we realize like, oh, maybe my close rate's actually not as good as I thought. Or remarkably, maybe my close rate's actually so high that I'm probably underpriced and need to raise my fees because you actually, like, if you close 95% of your uh, prospects, you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. No joke. Like if you're closing 95% of your prospects, you are you are not priced high enough. Like mm-hmm. there should be some type price tension. Some people should decide even that you're not worth mm-hmm. it. If everybody thinks you're worth it, uh, you're underpriced. So sometimes you can learn something from that data. But when you go one step deeper, like, you know, hey, you've got three advisors in your office. Do they all close similarly? Like, does one of them do better than than others? Um, you know, does one have a better follow through on prospects actually going to a second meeting in the first place? Like, do you do you know? And a lot of the time, we we don't. And so when you get down, like okay, how consistently is this happening across your firm, across your different advisors, or how consistent is it across your marketing channels? Because often it's it's not, uh, right? It's just some some channels produce more volume of leads, but they might be lower quality leads, but maybe you get some really good ones, but you got to sort through more of the wheat to get more of the chaff to get to the wheat. Yep. Uh, if, if, like, if you don't keep some data on it, 
just getting to those core questions like uh, how many leads, how many were qualified, and how many turn into clients, and ideally how much revenue did you actually get from them, is really hard for most advisors to actually bring together. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why we exist. So, I mean, and people are like, I didn't know this was a thing. And I'm so sad for the financial advisory world, right? I'm so sad that they don't have this. As advisors, they they need this to grow their practices and not necessarily grow them in, in regards to like new business and new money, but more of just hitting goals, whether it's spending more time with family or whatever it is, just to become more efficient. Um, but you're right. This is most people have never heard of this and that's what makes me sad, but that's why we're here. <laughs> that's, that's what anyway. I want to put the message out to the world that it's, it's doable and, and you can do it. It's one of those, like, I, I guess the old saying in the, in the business world, like if you're, if you're not measuring it, you can't manage it. So if you, mm-hmm. if you're not gathering some kind of data around how your marketing sales process is working, you, you can't possibly make improvements or even just figure out what to stop doing. That's not working. Cause you, you don't, you don't really have good, good perspective. And, and, you know, for multi-advisor firms, the moment you have multiple advisors, you really don't necessarily know what's happening because you're not there firsthand. But I find even for advisors that you know, try try to I don't know, keep track of this mentally in their heads, like try to try to be self-aware around it. I'm I'm actually often very fascinated by what advisors think is going on and then what they find out when they actually sit down and look at some of the data. And you just realize like your brain overweights the big client successes and the big losses that are heartbreaking and you lose most of the data in the middle. That's actually like the averaging and the volume. And so I find a lot of advisors just misjudge their own numbers because, you know, we, we, we get so fixated on that one client that we thought we were going to get that we don't get that we fail to realize like actually have a really high close rate. You're just really bothered about that one. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like, you got a couple of big clients, you're feeling really good. And then you look back at the numbers like, wow, you're barely closing 20% of the people you're sitting across from. Like, it's great that you got some big clients. Like, you might have really big numbers if you could make some adjustments to your sales process because these numbers aren't actually doing that, aren't going that well. Right. And it also gives them a sense of peace when they go to these events with other advisors and everyone's throwing out numbers. You know, I mean, people throw out numbers all the time. Like, t-shirts at a basketball game. Like this is my ROI and this is my close rate. And if you really know yours and you know why it is that way, there's such a sense of peace rather than that comparison game of like, well, why isn't mine 50%? But when you really start looking at it, you know why, you know, or I mean, you just have data to back up of that's really interesting that they're 50. Maybe we can be curious about that and ask about it and see if we're just looking at this number a different way. And it, it opens conversations too. Um, for these advisors who are competitive. Not that anybody in our industry is competitive right. about their numbers or anything. It's like <laughs> hypothetically, if you're Yeah, just saying if they were. It, it might be cool to be able to compare numbers <laughs> with others. So, so then take us a little bit further into just the, I don't know, the metrics, the metrics that matter. Like what, what do you, what do you actually measure and report on and, and dashboard out? Cause frankly, you, you mentioned so many steps there of like, did they set the appointment? Did they keep the appointment? Were they qualified? Did they come to the second appointment? Did they come to the third appointment? Did they become a client? Like, how long did it take to uh, do the process and, and move the dollars? And, like, just there's so many things there. I can easily see someone getting into like drowning in data overwhelm in the other direction. So, I'm sure you find in practice just some 
some numbers and metrics ma- matter more than others or become more of a focal point than others. So mm-hmm. what like what are the what are the metrics that matter that you tend to to focus on in this process? Yeah, I have a top five because there are, and our dashboards give them probably, I don't know, 40 that they can look at. But the top five that are that are at least the biggest drivers of change or understanding of what's happening would be your stick rate, which the definition for me always with data definitions really matters. So stick rate is of the people who get on your calendar, how many actually keep that first appointment. So first appointment stick rate. So Um, the, uh, uh, I mean, just envisioning in practice that that probably varies a lot by what your marketing channel is, right? When I, mm -hmm. when I get stuff from referrals, usually pretty darn high by the time they schedule something with me, it's going through if I yep. work with like some of the third-party lead gen services, it, it can be really low because they're like shopping a whole bunch of advisors at once. If I'm doing like seminar marketing, at least going back to my roots, doing seminar marketing in my early days, like it's kind kind of in the middle. Like you you ain't getting every appointment that gets mm-hmm. set at the end of a set at the end of a mm-hmm. dinner seminar, but you should get a certain percentage of them. And you know, if more than half are peeling off your calendar, like you got a problem in your follow-up process or or your appointment setting process or something else. So uh so you yep. get it like that. I feel like that's one that for advisors where almost everything is inbound and referral based, they're probably not used to measuring that because the stick rate's really, really high when it comes mm-hmm. in as a, a referral. But when you're doing more pro, just I guess proactive route by marketing in general, like it it is actually a normal thing that not every prospect follows through even in the first meeting. Just that becomes part of your process, and then a chance for process improvement of like, hey, you're having a really high fall off. Like, ever tried doing a reminder email exactly. <laughs> before and see if they stick? Like, there's exactly. things you can do to lift stick rate once you understand you have a stick rate problem. Exactly. And so then, what's benchmark the benchmark? There is seventy percent, and with benchmarking. There's a lot of ways we come up with it. And I like to tell people it's a tool, not a rule. Like we don't tell you that you have to hit a 70%. There's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't, but do people do want a framework to work within sometimes. So yeah, I, for the, you know, the, the very next question that always comes after you give me a score is like, a good score? Yes, <laughs> you exactly. it. Like, I'm so exactly. glad you gave me a number to measure by now. Did I get a good number? Yes. So, and for referrals, yeah, it's going to be higher. And digital leads, mm-hmm. it's going to be lower. And seminars are going to be right in the middle. So you hit it spot on. Um, okay. Then next is going to be close rate. So okay. of the people who keep a first, what percentage close? And benchmark, there's a 30 and everyone wants it to be 50 and everyone says it's 50. And I'm telling you, I look at a lot of data and it's not 50. Um, so I like to tell people that. And again, that's that whole giving you permission or proof of feeling okay that it's, if you're not hitting 50, that's okay. Uh, maybe you do with referrals, right? Referrals are yeah. higher. Um, seminars tend to be a little well, bit lower. Yeah. I mean, it just, uh, I mean, I'm thinking back to like my old days of, um, uh, of doing seminars and like, I, I'm I'm fascinated because how all the numbers match. Like the uh, uh, the 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 thing we always talked about was ten five three one, ten people in the room, five of them set an appointment, <laughs> three of them keep the appointment, which means you're keeping about sixty seventy yep. percent uh, stick rate. Uh, one of the three who sets an appointment and uh, who who sets the meeting ends out actually becoming a client. Spot when on. one in three is a thirty is a thirty percent, like so, I just I had always heard ten five three one. Sometimes you just got ten three one. Like 
10, 10, 10 butts in seats, three people who show up for an appointment, one of them who becomes a client. Um, uh, in the in the seminar marketing world, like it's the exact numbers you're, t- yep. you're talking about, and, and that's about. funny because our conversion our conversion benchmark is a fifty percent, which is which follows exactly what you just said. So the ten five, yeah. Um, yeah. And this is based off of tons of aggregate studies, but anyway. So, yeah. but but I do think it's an important thing that you highlight around even something like close rate. Uh, again, a lot of advice I find like they, you know, it's like the close rates higher. It's like well. Well, I close like half the people I'm in front of, and then we sit down, like at some numbers, and it's like it kind of seems like it's lower. And it's like, well, well, yeah, but like this one didn't count because they had a weird circumstance. Like, <laughs> yes. No, that counts. That's like part of the part of the point. Like, you know, exactly. this client wasn't a good fit because they had a weird circumstance. That's known as not a qualified prospect. You probably should have had a way to not meet with them in the first place. Like, that's actually a signal. Mm-hmm. of a problem mm-hmm. in your process. Like for a lot of, for, for some advisors, I find like their, their problem is not that they have a bad close rate because they're not good at selling. Their problem is uh, they sit in front of a lot of people who are not a good fit. Mm-hmm. And so there's no reasonable chance to close them. And you might not have even wanted to close them in the first place. But if you, if you keep true to the metrics and you find out like, oh, I'm only closing one in 10, I sit in front of because half of them are a bad fit in the first place. Like, well, cool. That means you're actually closing one in five who are a good fit, which is a little bit better of a close rate. But that means you need to fix your like your appointment process or your meeting process to screen out five bad prospects that you're seeing on an ongoing basis. Exactly. Which you don't get to until you measure the data in a consistent way so you can go back and see like, oh, I have a bad close rate. And it's not because I'm a bad closer. It's because I'm not sitting in front of the right people. I probably yep. need to fix that. Well, and that – so story time. Uh, we had an advisor and they had multiple advisors on their team. I'm doing a coaching call and we're looking and they're like, Hey, this one guy, he just can't close. We're really struggling. I think we're going to, you know, give him the boot. And I'm like, well, let's look at the data before we make that call. (laughs) And we looked at it and he did have a really low close rate, but it wasn't his close. He was actually, when we measured his, the close, which was at the second appointment for them, he was the strongest closer of the whole team. He was such an intense guy that he was losing everybody after first and he wasn't converting them to a second appointment. So strongest closer of the team, it's simply just he wasn't building trust and he needed to ease up a little bit and he needed a little bit of training for him to just build relationship in the first meeting instead of being so gung-ho. And that that speaks to your point, right? Like he was actually the strongest closer, but his close rate was low because of a problem way earlier on in the sales cycle. And Oh, interesting. So he was... So two meeting process, like for anybody that got to the second meeting where you're supposed to close them, he was the best at, at getting them closed. The problem is like he just he was so intense, not a lot of people wanted to go to the second meeting. So if you measure the whole funnel, like how many leads did we send him? How many did he get? The number was bad. But it's not because he doesn't get the close when the when it's time to actually win the business. It's because he was so intense he was freaking them out before they got <laughs> yes, to that to exactly. that part of the process. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, and that speaks to your point, right? Like we just, we have to back up and, and really look at the whole thing um, to tell us more information. So, so we have stick rate, yep. close rate. Yep. So what's the, what's the third big metric? Average case size. That is so telling of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So, um, and they all link. 
so average case size, if you've got people who are writing a million and above, their close rates can be a little bit lower because it just mm-hmm. takes a long time, depending on how often we're looking at data, just from a time standpoint. Um, but average case size is really telling. And then we're going to have higher close rates for people who are more transactional at that $100,000, $200,000 mark. So that's really important. It also tells you what advisors are good with working with certain subgroups of people and looking at it by source, right? So do seminars drive a certain demographic, a certain net worth? Are our referrals dragging our average case size down when we thought it would bring it up? You know, looking at it by source is really important too for average case size. And, and so average case size in this context, just like the the average size of the the check that I'm getting is like the average size of the advisory account if I'm the advisor and the um, I'm thinking back to like my early days of insurance. So like, you know, a- average case size is like average target premium on a variable universal life policy. Like that it's that kind of metric, like the the average the average size of the client that you're getting. Yes. So managed money and annuity put together. And and just curious, like do you measure that in I don't know that it matters, but do you, do you measure that in in assets? Do you measure that in just pure revenue? Yeah, good question. We have the team track it as assets, and then on the back end, we're doing the revenue for the advisor. Okay, okay. People get so, funny with money, so we try not to include too much revenue, you know, for the support team to see that. So, so that just helps you again get really clear because this is another one. Like I talk to a lot of advisors, you know, my. Oh, my average clients over a million. It's like, well, tell me about your practice. Um, I have, you know, I have two hundred clients and uh, one hundred forty million dollars under management. Like, I'm doing the math, and the average is seven hundred. <laughs> like, you're telling me your average clients over a million, but like, the math does not hold up. And and granted, sometimes that's because my average new client really is over a million, but I've got some smaller ones from the early days in the business where it was small, where it was smaller, but. Again, I mean, this is one where you know we we can we can fool ourselves sometimes because you know I really remember the few big clients that I got, and I don't then add up how many smaller clients and concessions and accommodations and other folks that I take in that still take up seats on the bus and 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 room in the practice until you track all of it and then really sit down and look at the number and say like oh. My average new client is actually not quite as big as I thought it was. Maybe that's why I'm not growing as quickly as I thought I was, or maybe that's why I feel like I have no time because I'm adding a lot of clients that aren't actually a good fit. Yep. And the other thing too is once you decide to go for higher average case size clients, you don't need as many leads. So you can use that mathematically as well for planning and not be freaked out. And say, okay, we're going to spend less this year, but really get that avatar person. If if you're looking for the higher net worth group, um, and it it you can use it to your advantage. So it, there's just a lot you can do with knowing that number. So then, what's the? So we've got stick rate, close rate, average case size. So what's the fourth? Pending days. So pending days. Yes. Right. So what is pending days? So pending days is going to be like days between appointments. Or the days it takes from something like getting submitted to issues on the insurance side. Okay. So days, basically. Days. So, you know, day. And the idea here is basically days from when a client signs until money money moves or revenue gets going. I mean, is that the essence of it here? So that's one of them. 
the other okay. ones are actually in the sales cycle. So how many days between the day they reach out interested in an appointment until when you book the appointment, as in they call on a Monday, they want appointment. If you can't get them in the calendar for 15 days, we got a problem. Okay. So like how, how many, how flex, how available is your calendar and how many yep. days, how many days does it take to actually find a slot on your calendar? Because if it's too many, realistically, you're going to start losing prospects who ironically might've been very excited to work with you yes. before, but you, you lost them out of the game. I'm like, I would so love to work with you. Uh, you know, grab a, grab a time on my calendar in three weeks and we'll get going. It's like, yeah, I was <laughs> nope. kind of hoping to be through this in three weeks because I'm really terrified of getting a financial advisor and it's very stressful to me. And so I was ready to do it today. Yes. <laughs> like not three weeks from now. Yes, Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And and then the rest of the right? The rest of the sales cycle. So from the first appointment to the second appointment. And I think sometimes advisors feel great when their calendar is packed and they and they've some of them have even been taught, which drives me nuts, that to say, well, my calendar's really full. My first appointment isn't for three weeks. But that is such a disservice to these prospects who are excited and want to get in and you've just built trust in a first meeting and they're ready. And for then for your scheduler to come back in and say, well, he's so full. We don't have something for a month. You lose so much momentum, you know? And yeah, there's, I feel like there's a thing that some of us get of like, I'm, I'm supposed to be hard to get. Like it's an exclusivity thing. Like, I guess I will deign to consider taking your money three weeks from <laughs> yes. now. And like to to be fair, I I do know a handful of advisors that have built their practices and their brand to a certain level. I think they can legitimately get away from that. Like they can actually successfully play up. I really am that exclusive, and like you're gonna you're you're gonna have to try to be my client. Mm-hmm. Most of us, I don't think, can actually get away with that though. Mm-hmm. Like if we, if we, if we try, like they're just gonna go to someone who's easier to schedule. Yeah, and again, back to that average case size. The higher net worth people will wait. We have a guy who does an average case size of a million or above, and his average days between appointments is like twenty five days, which our benchmark. Talking about benchmarks, for days between appointments is ten to fifteen days, and his is twenty five. It's way past what we recommend, but they're fine with it, you know? And again, we've got the data. So we know that it's not affecting his prospect story and what they're doing that doesn't necessarily work out for everybody, like you said. So, so it sounds like there are, I mean, just do you end up with a slew of pending days measures? Cause just like, I mean, there, in theory, you can measure days literally between every single step of the process. Is there, is there some roll up of these of like the primary ones to look at or is the point really you want to look at every single every single step and layer no the really what we what we do look at for the days is just between first and second that's the biggest one and then um from when the app is submitted on the insurance side and getting issued and that should be 30 so those would be kind of the top two days we do look at all of them because i'm a data person but if you're going to try this, you know, out on your own and really start looking at those things, just look at between the first and the second should be 10 to 15 days. Um, and then between the app sign date should be within 30. Okay. Well, I know our, our audience skews a little bit more towards planning fees and investment accounts, yep. but I guess your equivalent is, you know, from, from, from close to 
money money moves money in account. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Just how how long does it take to to get there? Or if you're planning only like the di- days from when they say they want to be a client mm-hmm. until you've actually delivered the plan and you're you know you're 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 wrapping your process. Mm-hmm. That's good. Okay. And again, once they get that number, let's say they have two or three that end up being a shorter time frame, you can be curious about that. And you can say, well, why were those shorter? And it, we, once we start looking mm-hmm. at the data and we have it, it's so cool because you can improve yourself. You don't need someone to tell you that. You can just see it. And then what's the what's the last measure that you like to look at as, as drivers for change? So the last measure is cost per client or cost per lead. Mm-hmm. I prefer cost per client. Okay. So and, that's essentially like my acquisition cost. Just to, uh, yep. Rolling all my marketing costs in, how much did I actually spend to get this client? Yeah. And benchmark, again, they're a tool, not a rule. But really what we say there should be for everything should be about $4,500 per client. It's going to be a lot less for digital. I mean, barely anything for referrals. But you get into TV, radio, all of that, those sorts of means, and they're pretty high. I mean, we're talking eight grand. Yep. You know, cost per client is not abnormal. And and just curious, like, do you do you just measure that looking at the the hard dollar spend of their marketing strategy? You know, the 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 seminar mailer and the dinner and the uh, and and such, or are you like trying to count some cost of their like their time and staff time and the and and the the time side of it? Oh, that's such a good question. You actually came out with a report on this. That I was looking at um, when we were looking at ROI. It was some ROI report that you had. It was talking about that. It talks about their time. So we do not include their time on that. We're just looking at hard costs. But I did love reading through that for you, by the way. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, we've we've looked at it and we've looked at it and measured in 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 both ways as well. Because again, I I find it varies a little bit by the frankly the advisors and the channel because. There are strategies that are really time intensive, right? You uh-huh. know, sort of biggest classic is like COI referrals, all like the networking meetings and the lunches and the social <laughs> lunches, like the things that we do to build up. Where I see advisors come out, and it's like I, yeah, like I, you were having great growth, and I spent like one percent on marketing. It's almost nothing. Like, cool, tell me about your marketing process, and they start going into all the the COI activities they do. And it's like, yeah, you know my. My my budget's like a couple hundred dollars a month to take these people out to lunch and do my and do my stuff. Like it's a really low cost strategy. Like, how do you value your time? Because I'm adding yep. up all the things you're describing. Like, you're spending like hours and hours every week with all these different networking meetings and things that you're that you're going to. Which means over the span of the year, you might be spending two, three, four hundred hours on this. Mm-hmm. And I know what you bill, so like. That's like a hundred thousand dollars of marketing expenses. Mm-hmm. You're just doing with your time and pretending your time is worthless, even though it's it's not. But then on the other end, I see the advisors that have, you know, m- much more spending oriented. Like I'm I'm paying to make things show up in the extreme. Like people that just literally pay for third party lead gen, and the leads just show up and you just respond to them. Where their time is really minimal. Their the dollar expense is a lot higher. But it's just because they're trading their time for dollars, and it it averages out remarkably similarly. Uh, because when we you know when we measure that in the studies that we look at, we get these acquisition costs of 
uh, at the low end, two or three thousand dollars per client. And just by the time you get to an experienced advisor who either is has more valuable time or is spending more money on marketing to make up for their time. I think the last version of the study that we did, the average uh, client acquisition cost for an established advisor was four to five thousand dollars. So I mean, it like yep. exact same number that that you're at. Yeah. Uh, which then is powerful when you get back to well, what's your average case size? Like, what's your average client size? Mm-hmm. That you know, that's great math with million dollar clients. It's pretty good math with half million dollar clients. And like, this is why most of us end up creating minimums with two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars at some point. Because any lower than that, it takes more than two years on an advisory account to generate enough revenue to just make back the marketing costs. Never mind the actual like cost of service and all the mm-hmm. work we do in the first year. Mm-hmm. And. For the most part, and I think most advisors will speak to this. Again, I'm, I'm not an advisor, so I don't know, but I see it in the data. Those non-qualified leads are the one or the ones that you let slip by because you liked them and they weren't really qualified, or they were the referral that came in from your A client. They're the most work, you know. And and yeah. it's interesting just to see that it doesn't pan out from a longevity standpoint with, with those leads and knowing, knowing that all goes back to the close rate and the qualified and all of that. So it all kind of does this dance. Interesting. And so, uh, so you look at, so stick rate when you're setting meetings, do they actually show up just sort of a good basic level of, of client quality close rate? If they actually came to a meeting, do they, do they close average client size? So, you know, Assets or revenue fees, however you measure it, like how, how much revenue you generate from each client that you work with. Pending days, so how much time does it take to get through each each step of your marketing and sales process? And then cost per client, when you add up all the marketing costs you had and divide by how many clients you actually got, like what what is that? What does that come out to? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess obviously then you can go back and refer back really quickly, like. If your average cost per client is low, it is higher than your average revenue per client, this is probably not going to work well. Like uh-huh. You kind of want re- revenue to be higher than cost. <laughs> Read the business book somewhere. Uh, to be fair, like when we when we run recurring revenue models, like you do get some room of, well, I can have a client that doesn't generate all the revenue back in the first year, but if my average client stays 10, 20 plus years because I've got a high retention rate and a recurring revenue model, like you can make it back in the long run. Uh, sometimes very profitably because for for the uh, recurring revenue models, but you know if your if your cost to get a client adds up to more than your revenue for each client, like you probably have a growth problem. <laughs> yes. So then, how does all this like actually get tracked? Like, how do you generate all this all this data to be able to track all this stuff? Where does it come from? Where's like yeah. where's the data all come from? These are from my uh I had a client that was on with you and he called them Excel sheets and he's like, Erica is gonna be so mad that I, that I called them Excel sheets, but they are. Um they come from my incredibly smart team has helped me kind of bring us into the 21st century because my old sheets were real ugly, but they made them a little bit prettier now. And it's really just, it's Google sheet based and there's reasons for that. It's not because I'm lazy or cheap. Uh, We can go into those reasons later, but 
they really are just a very simple system. Like these advisory support staff don't want a complex, really hard mm-hmm. software platform, whatever it is, to relearn because they've already had to do that multiple times. So it's a very simple sheet and we are doing a ton of work on the back end. So all they do is take a line, you fill out the lead's name and you track them through the process. You know, where, what's their name? What's their marketing funnel? What is the date of the appointment? Did they keep it? Did they set another one? And then did they become a client? I mean, it's that simple. So, so I'm just trying to literally envision spreadsheet forms. So just like a whole bunch of rows. Each row is one client or one lead. Hopefully it becomes a client. Each right. row is one lead. <laughs> and then just a whole bunch of columns of like, were, were they qualified? When was the first meeting? When was the second meeting? Did they become a client? How much did they bring over? Just all, all these different exactly. data points on one big old row. And then you can calculate all the metrics on the back end about uh, all, all the key ratios that you were talking about. Yeah. And we keep marketing and new business separate. So in most, in bigger offices, you've got someone doing the marketing and they're helping you know, set appointments and chase the lead. Once they become a client, it's off their plate and they don't care. And so they pass the baton and we, then we have a separate tracker for new business. And that is where it is stored and where it is tracked. And then uh, we are auditing the data and we're scrubbing it. And that's truthfully like the key piece that most people miss. <laughs> the, most people are trying to track it or they have these Excel sheets or they've got 700 Excel sheets, but there's no third eye on it to make sure it's right or that it's getting done or it's Debbie over in the corner and she's the only one that knows how to do it. So so help me understand more of just what you're doing that. I mean, just what does it mean of we're, we're scrubbing and cleaning the data? The wizard on our team, his name is Christopher. His title is the wizard. He's awesome. And he was able to kind of automate, we used to do this by hand and we used to do it one-on-one, like literally go into every client's sheets and look and make sure they're filling out each place. And I said, there's got to be a better way. (laughs) We have to automate this. So, so it's automated and there's these scrub tabs that say, look, this isn't filled out. The sheets are smart. We have a product called the Tracker Genie in there. It turns green if you didn't fill it out. So an example would be Sally Smith. She set an appointment for February 16th. We log into the sheet and today is February 17th and you didn't tell her our sheet if she kept the appointment or not. So that cell is now green and your auditing sheets now have her name populated that says, hey, something's not right. This didn't get filled out and therefore your stick rate is off. And it tells them exactly who it is, what line it is and how to fix it. Okay. So... So then I guess in that in that vein, like this is still it is a manual process of just track each data point of the of the step. There's like I someone still gotta mark each like we did the meeting on this date. Okay, we did the meeting on this date. Okay, they said yes. Okay, here's how much they brought over. Like that that still all has to get manually punched in one one lead at a time, one stage at a time. For 75% of our clients, yes. And this is where it's sad to me because those same 75%, nearly all of them have a CRM. They have 
red kind table. Of what I was wondering. They have yeah. wealth box. They have sales. They have these incredibly huge, robust systems, and they cannot extrapolate data. They can't get it out. They don't know where it lives. There's no process. It's not getting put in right. So we tell people we have integrations for all of them. I and mean, we're smart enough. We've done this long enough that we can absolutely automatically pull data out of your system. But is it right? And all of those people say no. And that's what breaks my heart. <laughs> they're doing all this work and they're putting all this stuff in and they don't know how to put it, pull it out. And they know it's not accurate in there. And so it's not even worth pulling it out. And so they are willing to do the work a second time to get it correct. So, so, so basically, so like you, you could automate all this in CRM or like extracting it from CRM. If only the advisors just entered the data properly and consistently in their CRM, but advisors are not only not entering it well in the CRM, they would actually rather do it in your sheet than the CRM, which I guess essentially says, hey, good news, at least your your sheets are a lot easier to maintain than all the clicks you have to do to do this in the CRMs. I guess they're, they're concluding, like, if, I, <laughs> if I'm going to track this, it's easier to actually re-enter the leads in your spreadsheet than it is to figure out how to use my CRM properly. Right. Sort of a sad statement on CRM, but that's, I feel like that's what I'm hearing here. I know. And that's, it's terrible. And we have all these integrations. We do. We integrate with all them. We have, like I said, 25% of our clients have it together and organized enough to pull the data out so that we can scrub it and then I can do coaching on it. But again, that's this sad fact in our industry. And, it, and sometimes, hopefully, it's freeing for any advisor who's listening to where they feel like everyone else has it figured out, kind of like that iceberg thing that we've talked about in the past mm-hmm. or that you talk about often, yeah. is they think that everyone has it together and everyone's, everyone's Salesforce system works. And it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, I work with 100 <laughs> advisor practices and only t- maybe even less, maybe 10 to 15 of them are pulling it out. So there's your, there's your freedom yeah. song, people. <laughs> so... But I, I guess worth noting on the other end, as I as I think I had heard you say, like the other reason you just you keep it in a spreadsheet in the first place is support staff don't want a, a like a big old complex system because as noted, it's not getting entered into CRMs that may be a little too complex on this. But what that means on the flip side is like it's not necessarily the advisor punching in every data point. It may be it may be a staff team member. It may be a administrative assistant or client service manager or CSA kind of role. It's it's not necessarily the advisor taking the time to do this. Right. And we actually advise against it because they get restless and they get impatient and they think certain things are going on with leads when they're not. And we want the service team to take ownership of their role within the office and mm. let them do their job. And so for for a lot of offices, we actually don't even give editing permissions to, to the advisor. They only get view access. Interesting. Be, because, tell me understand. So, be, because if the advisors have access, like they start tinkering and messing with it, or just yes, because sir. you're you're trying to push it to support teams, so like they've got ownership of hey the. The box is green because you haven't entered a data point is the nice way to nudge them to say like, hey, why is the pending day so high? Have you reached out to schedule the follow-up meeting? It's both. Yes, what both. Are the, what do the advisor – like I'm just really curious. Like what do the advisor do to break it? <laughs> they, they don't 
break it, they get in there and they'll see the lead and be like, oh no, I closed them. I, I closed them. So then they'll change it to yes, but they don't realize that the baton shifting between marketing and new business is, you know, marketing doesn't put yes until the app has been submitted or whatever understanding they have as a workflow. Oh, but the advisor like gets in. If, if I'm in a lot, like if I'm in a mid to large size firm that has sort of like specific workflow definitions about where clients are in a process, if you go and change the status of a client in the process when they didn't actually trigger that part of the workflow, like you, you, you break the company, like you screw up the company's workflow. Spreadsheet's fine. You exactly. screw up the company's workflow because exactly. you, you, your spreadsheet says they're in a different stage than they're actually in. Yep. Okay. So like if I'm a solo, I'm probably okay. But if I'm in a, if I'm in a bigger firm and there are a lot of hands touching the sheet, like please, please don't break company workflow. Exactly. Yep. We're trying to have them stay in their own lane. Yeah. And so you mentioned earlier, but now I, I am curious coming back. Like, so why, why Google Sheets? Yes. Okay. So, man, I I've done this a really long time. I've been in this industry I don't know, fifteen years. So, so a long time. And it started with Excel sheets, and then I started Track That Advisor, and it was still in Excel sheets, and that was crazy. And then we went to Google Sheets, which I liked. Then I spent a ton of money to build a platform, and I didn't like it. And it was because. These offices need some sort of customization. Like we can't standardize, we can standardize a certain amount of it, but we have to be able to customize a lot of it because it's this moving, it's this moving fluid, like data analytics isn't static. It doesn't just stay the same. Mm -hmm. And I use this analogy a lot, like stars versus constellations, but there's 10,000 data points we could look at for offices and certain ones matter at different times. and so. I had built this database and it wasn't super fluid and we couldn't really change a lot. So I veered away from that. And now we're back to sheets. We have some pretty exciting things happening in 2023 for our clients. I, I don't want to spill the beans on them, but we're moving in a, um, a bit of a different direction this year, but we haven't really made that public. So um, sheets are the easiest. They they are within Google. Be, and I, because it's it's a spreadsheet. So it's the end of the day, like, yeah. you want to rejigger it and calculate some new things and move a row or two around. Like it's it's a spreadsheet. So like the glory of Excel or mm-hmm. Google Sheets spreadsheets, like just they are wonderfully malleable. I've spoken like a data nerd probably. I know. But they're wonderfully <laughs> they're wonderfully malleable. Spreadsheets. And people love them. Place. Because yeah. they don't realize really what they can do until you get experts like my team that is mm-hmm. on them and can do anything on them. And they look like a database, you know, they look like an app. So then like, how do you ultimately work with advisors? I mean, what is it, what does it cost to, uh, to get up and running and do this? So it's a subscription based model and one, the advisor has to want to track and convince their team that they want to do this. And then we charge an onboarding fee. $1,500 for an onboard. So what that is doing is we're creating all the trackers. We're creating all the sheets for you. We work with your team. Our CEO, Molly, is incredible and she gets it all built and ready to go. Does a several hour onboard via Zoom. Teaches the team how to do it. Fills it in. And then it's monthly. So it's $600 a month and it's just a subscription-based model. They do sign an annual contract, but 
we found after doing this a long time, sometimes it's just not a fit. And I don't want to be locked in for a year with somebody whose team isn't putting the data in and we're doing all this work. Or an advisor comes to us and says, you know, maybe this isn't what I thought it was or my team doesn't have the capacity. So we have a 90-day free look. So after 90 days, we're all going to know if this is going to work or not. And so that has been really helpful for everybody to make sure that it's a win. And we want it to be a win. Our whole job is to be a resource. We don't want to be, you know, a weight on people's shoulders. So I'm thinking practically just like $600 a month is not a trivial expense uh, for for firms, even relative to what we spend for some of our other tech in our, in our tech stack. So just as, as I sort of think about and interpret that, uh, like just I got to be putting a pretty good amount of dollars towards marketing to be able to say, if I spend $600 a month, I can, I can make this more efficient, uh, and, you know, and, and, and get back $7,200 a year of ROI because my marketing is going to run better. If I can just fix these problems in my marketing funnel that I will now be able to see because I'm right. tracking all of it and I have my stick rate, my close rate, and my client acquisition costs and all the rest. Yep. It, yeah. Now, is that a pricing like per advisor, per firm? Like if I'm a firm with multiple advisors, am I like, do I have to pay multiple licenses to have multiple advisors? How how does it work at that level? Yeah, we get that question a lot. And no, it's it's just one simple, I just, I believe in like simplicity. I don't want to overcomplicate things. So it is just one price point. Uh, we do have kind of a system. Which means just that, that covers me for the Firm. So like I, I yes. might have one advisor or I have five advisors or I have 10 advisors. Like it's, it's the same, just, yep. I pay my onboarding fee and $600 a month. Yep. We got offices who are doing, yep. you know, 10 million. And then we've got one last year that's close to 400 million for the year of new business and they paid the okay. same fee. Yeah. Okay. So I guess practically speaking, like if I'm a solo, this may feel a little bit expensive to me unless I'm doing a lot of marketing. If I'm a big firm with Five, 10, 20 plus advisors, like this amortizes out really quickly. <laughs> like that. Right. This is a no brainer. Spread, spread across yeah. a couple of heads. That math gets really <laughs> small per advisor. Like if any yes. one advisor does anything slightly better, this this math is going to be really easy for mm-hmm. ROI for the firm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so is that what you find in practice? Like is it is it more common this gets adopted with multi-advisor firms and platforms? Yeah. And we started a company last year, sister company, myself and Molly, our CEO, called Track That Seminar. And that is for the smaller offices who are just moving from like the referral existing client into dabbling into seminars because that's typically the first step once we start spending on marketing. And it only tracks seminars, which is great. And it's a fantastic solution for them. And we knew we needed one because we'd have these offices that are sole producer and they look at me with deer in the headlights saying, there's no way (laughs) I'm spending that. And so track that seminar only track seminars. It's awesome though, because that's really where we start seeing that you Mm -hmm. can't keep the leads in your head. Um, And that's 250 a month. So it's, it's less than half the cost. So get, get, if that's what you're doing and just, you want to start tracking and measuring there. Cause as you know, like it's a, it's a good place to, uh, to measure ROI, I find just you know, I thinking back to my my days starting on the seminar marketing end, like it's a very repeatable process with very very concrete steps of where people are through the through the stage. So 
uh, if you track the numbers consistently and you do the process repeatedly, it's very conducive to process improvement. Like mm-hmm. our stick rate's low. We put another reminder thing in place. Like our, our close rate's good, uh, but our non-qualified rate's too high. Okay, well, let's adjust the mailer a little bit to try to put different different butts and seats that are a better fit. Just it, it's – I get it. Like it's it, that's a really – marketing funnel that's really conducive to – Let's get some really good concrete, consistent numbers in here, and we'll find really quickly what what levers to move to make the process work better. Yep, it's very machine like, totally. So then, what what is your what is your journey that you come to the world of uh, you ma- making <laughs> making track that advisory? It's like ma- making making spreadsheets <laughs> to measure marketing data. Yeah, it's a crazy one. I I'm not the entrepreneur spirit at all. And it's funny uh, that I'm in the role that I am in. So I'm I'm an English major <laughs> from school, and I I studied rhetoric and composition. So persuasion Fantastic. with story. I know it's crazy how it all tied together here in the end. But I it was just my my, my my liberal arts degree is just smiling. <laughs> oh, look at us, man! We're these. Yes, I know. English Fantastic. turned data nerd. So. Mm-hmm. But it's worked out so well because I can communicate about the data. And so I went to college, studied English, and worked for an advisor, did the marketing for them. And they so, were wanting- So you so yeah. you landed in an advisory firm like straight out of English major college? I dabbled at a publication for a while and realized really quickly that I did not want to be in that. And I sat there saying, oh my gosh, I just went to college and- I don't think this is what I want to do. <laughs> well, now we're really into the liberal arts education. Yes. Yes. So that was pretty scary. And someone had told me, hey, I know this advisor. They're looking for a marketing person. You know, you do English. Maybe that'll be a fit. And I said, let me try it. I'll write copy all well, they, day. I was going to say, like, they, they need marketing <laughs> words and you're good at words. So yes. clearly this is a fit. <laughs> And then I entered into the financial world and I said, wow, I am not writing copy. There's so much other stuff that's happening. And it was great. And I I did love it. And the advisors had gone to an event and wanted to maybe take some of the marketing a different direction. And I didn't think it was a good idea. And I had zero data to back it up. And Mm. it was this light bulb moment for me saying, and they didn't make me feel that way. It was more of me saying, I don't, I don't know how to prove this to them, right? They're the owners and they're asking me, should we do this? Should we not? You're a marketing person. And I had zero response and I felt like I was Mm. failing, but I was also doing their company books. And I said, I know I've got all the pieces to, to figure this out and give them an answer. And so behind closed doors, I started tracking everything. I was like the mad scientist in my office and lo and behold, sat down six months later, showed them what was going on. And at that time, I didn't, I didn't understand like the data storytelling or the analytics. I just was able to present it to them and show them visually what was happening from an ROI standpoint. And that felt really good. And I loved it. And they loved it. And no one was doing this in the industry. And so I did it for quite a while. And my husband and I moved out of state and I was devastated. I thought I would be at their practice my entire life and did not foresee this coming. So you were, so you were still like doing this and just building it up in their advisory firm Yes. for like how, so 
how long were you doing it and and like what was the nature of their advisory firm? So they were they were interns only when I started with them and then they moved into the managed money um, towards the end of my time there. And so I was there five years maybe. Yeah, I was there probably five years, maybe six. And we would meet. So I, I started doing this maybe my second year with them. So I did it for four or five years just for them. And we'd meet every six months and I would put, <laughs> this is so embarrassing, but I would print out on like, 20 Excel sheets and tape them all together and put it on their boardroom table. <laughs> and you know advisors, right? I mean, advisors are like, they looked at it and they're like, what are you presenting to us? This is so ugly. It sounds glorious. I know. Like, it was. Must have filled the whole boardroom table. That's I did. And I folded it up on my side, charts everywhere. <sighs> but I, But they saw the value and I felt seen and I loved making sense of all of it. And it made sense to me. Like I saw all the numbers and could just read what was going on and was like, this is why it matters. And this is where we need to cut some spending. And this is where it's a good idea. And I felt so secure in telling them that, that it lit just a fire under me. And so we started doing that every six months and they'd roll their eyes and they didn't want to have the meeting and I'd pull them in and pull out my 25 Excel sheets, but it started making traction and they would make decisions and then it would pay off later. And we all saw it working and it was so fun. And I mm-hmm. and I fell in love with it. And then I moved <laughs> and I was so sad. So moving was just like life, family, circumstances, spouse, yeah. job change, that kind of thing? Yep. Yep. My husband, I uh, was pregnant with our son and uh, my husband's company closed and it was a big surprise. And so he ended up finding a job in a different state. And so we moved and I just, you know, obviously wanted to honor him in that and support him in that. And I was pregnant, so I didn't know what I was going to be doing with work. And uh, so it was just weird. We kind of just closed that chapter. We moved out to Arizona and I had our son. Where where were you previously? I was in Colorado. I was in Northern Colorado in the Loveland area, uh, born and raised in Fort Collins and then moved out to Gilbert, Arizona. And we were here, had my son, wasn't working, didn't really know what I would be doing. And they called me, I was probably, I don't know, six to eight weeks maybe after I had my son. And they said, look, no one does the tracking. This is not a thing. We don't know how to do it. The new person doesn't get it. Can you, can you just do that aspect for us? And um, So this was like the old firm call, calling mm-hmm. you back. Mm-hmm. So how how long had it been at that point that you're gone? Three months, maybe. Not, okay, not long. And, okay. Uh, so just long enough to like you left. They got a new person in. The new person's doing it and doesn't get it. Yes, and they don't get it. You know, they're trying to. It's the blind leading the blind. You know, right, they, they right. were trying to help them, but they knew kind of what they needed. And light bulb went on, and I said, "Man." I should start something. <laughs> I, sh- I should start a company. And it was like an eye roll. I mean, it was not, again, it's not my dream to own something. And I'm actually, I'm very introverted. I'm not salesy. And I'm just sitting here like, oh, but I, it's a solution and it's a problem solver. So I'm struck though. So you, you, it's not like they came back and, and asked you to help it and you just said, Hey, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll work with you on a consulting basis to help you with this from from afar from Arizona 
it was they they want some help with this and your first thought was like, well, if I'm going to make it for you, I'm going to make it for a bunch of people and sell it to everyone. <laughs> like, that, is that how this played out? I, I guess. I think you're calling me out. On, I, it is. I I don't know why my brain went there, but it did. And it just was like, like you might be under underselling your entrepreneurness. I know that's what everyone says. You're like, well, if I'm going to build it, I'm going to sell it to more people than just you. That's great. I know. I'm going to sell it to everybody. I, 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 but I think it it comes from the heart of wanting to help. And I saw how last they were without it just three months. And then yeah. it was again such a reminder of there's got to be a ton of people who are floating around blind, and I hate that. Mm-hmm. I hate that for them. So yes. So then track that advisor was was formed. They became my first clients, which was super cool. And it's we've had such a great relationship from there on, and they've really helped birth a lot of this too. But it's been referral only. Like I I didn't want to come out swaying. Again, I just had a kid. <laughs> I just had my first kid. So we moved across the country. When when was this? Just like what year this are we This was 14, 15. Okay. So I started the idea, started noodling on it, put a ton of thought into it for an entire year before I really did anything. And then in 15, it actually was launched and became an actual company. And I knew I didn't want to grow fast primarily because I was just terrified of being a business owner and the advisory. I was going to say, yeah, like why, why, what was the fear of fast? So it's like, so what was terrifying about being a business owner? Truthfully, probably, probably my, my clientele, (laughs) they, um, they're advisors and they don't hold back their opinion and they will poke the bear of data and, my personality type is a yes person and the people pleaser. And so there was a lot I I personally just had to overcome saying, mm-hmm. when I come at it with data, it's very black and white. And I have to be able to have some hard conversations and do that with grace. But data can be hard. And, it, and you have to tell people things they don't yeah. want to hear sometimes. So mm-hmm. that I had to so wrestle with that. you just felt like you needed to... Like build your own courage or confidence of like I'm gonna I'm gonna do this a few times with a few people and if it goes well then maybe I'll do it with a few more. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And I didn't want, yeah. I'm just kind of a slow and steady type of person, and it fit. And we were growing our family too, and family is really important to me. And I didn't want to get lost in that. So okay. it's been referral based and relatively slow growth all the way until 2021. And that was when we decided Molly, uh, Molly's our CEO and she's like guns a blazing man. She's, she's like the front stage person. I'm a backstage data English major and Molly really helped change the game with that. And she was like, Erica, this, we need to be known. Like this is such an incredible asset for these advisors. And she was very much the one who really spoke into me and just said, we've got to just go for it. So 2021 is really when we started putting ourselves out there. So, so how big is the team at this point? So there are five of us. Okay. A couple of other, you know, contractors that do other stuff, but five on staff and I keep it very small and very automated and very efficient. 
I don't want a huge staff. And so my team is all A plus players. <laughs> like I, you, people know if you come to work here, it's, it's going to be excellence and we require A plus. I don't require perfection, but I do require excellence. So Molly, Christopher, Colton, and Jennifer are A players. So, so I am intrigued that just you said Mo- Molly is your CEO. So for a lot of founders, like we name our we name ourselves as the CEO. We make the firm as <laughs> as founders. So tell me about how that role came about. Yeah, she was the first hire of the company, and um, I also am a believer. Anyone that we hire starts at the same place. So. I had always done like the data scrubbing and the building of the sheets and all of that. So when I hired her, I'm like, that's what you're doing first. So anyone that comes in our team, that's actually where you begin. And uh, also mainly because I want them to feel the pain of it. And later when they're making requests to people, they've been in their shoes. But anyway, that's kind of a a sidebar. Mm. But um, yeah, we just, we started growing a lot more and I really realized that my gifts and my strengths are in the data and the teaching and the coaching side and not front and center stage. So I'm still the face of the company and I'm still the founder and I'm still the owner, but she, she's a mover and she's a shaker and she has these big dreams. And I tend to be a little bit scared of change and scared of the what ifs. And she just kept pushing me and I'm like, you know what? You you really are that role, right? Like we're very much a yin and yang and she's the one who just kind of keeps the fire going and is like, well, what about this? And let's try this. And can we do this? And I'm always like, okay, <laughs> let's try yeah. it. I don't know. So that's, that's how her role became. And she just, she brought this energy that I don't, I bring a different energy. I just, um, I need time and I need space and I need quiet and so she very much filled the shoes of of all the other stuff that is required for us to keep this train moving. And so what was that like just n- naming someone else as CEO of the you know the, ba- the baby you you made the other baby cuz you Yeah, you know, I know, right? <laughs> um honestly, it was really freeing. I was under such a weight and I didn't like it. Like I say, I like I don't love the entrepreneurs. Parts of it I do. Parts of it I do. And I'm learning to love them. But I had to realize exactly how I'm created and what I love to do. And what I love to do is not the CEO stuff. So for me, it was so freeing. She'd been with me long enough. I know her well enough. I trust her. And I'm also free to disagree, right? Like we can have, we have conversations. It's very much a partnership. But I also knew we would not get to the levels we, I actually do want to get to with me being in that chair and we're doing it. So she's doing something right. <laughs> so what, what's changed since she took on the role? Our growth. I mean, we've just exploded in a great way. And I love the, the, the back stage part of operations and efficiency and automation. And so you know, she's kind of, I, I kind of see her out there with this megaphone of like, this is track that advisor. We are track that advisor. And I'm kind of sitting in the back, like, sweet, let's, let's make this work um, from the, from backstage and, and the teaching and the coaching. She doesn't, 
she doesn't love looking at the data. And she rolls her eyes at me. I'm like, but what about this stat? And did you guys know this about our our clients? And she's like, cool, Erica, you <laughs> you go sit in your hole and like do the stuff you're good at and that you like. And I love it. I'm free to do we, it. We we prefer data cave, not data hole. Oh, I like data cave. Okay, data I'll cave take it. Feels better. Like whole whole feels bad. Like <laughs> cave is just like it's a place that you retreat to for safety. Yes, there you go. My cave. So Molly lets me be in the cave. She's out and about in the world. And it was freeing, yeah, to answer your question. It felt really good. And I feel like I'm in my I'm in my sweet spot. And she's she's in hers. And she picks up other stuff a lot of times, like if we need it. And that's so telling of just her her work ethic. But um she is very much a leader. And I appreciate that because I wanted to lead in a different way. So what surprised you the most is you've built built this business into serving the advisor community? Probably how, how much I care about them and their success and them hitting their goals. It's kind of like the advisors who are, who care about their clients. And I had actually heard one of your podcasts, I forgot who it was, but he was talking about how initially you do it to do it, but then you end up genuinely caring about these people. Uh And that's the same. It's the same for me. I, I watch these advisors who are who are most of them are very different personality than me, and I watch them get so excited about new goals, and then we track it, and it works, or they pivot because something didn't work, and they astonish me. Like the, the advisor breed is is fascinating to watch, and they're so inspirational, and that surprised me. Like it, it has surprised me how much I look up to our clients and I'm just so proud of them. Like one, they're doing it and they're having their teams track this data, which can be hard and it can feel overwhelming, but then they see the, the fruit of it and then they make these changes and then they have new goals and then we're checking in on it. And I'm this cheerleader and that's, I, I didn't see those relationships coming. Right. Um, so yeah. That's that's been surprising for me. So what was the low point for you? Oh man, of owning the whole company, like the this whole Yeah, this, this whole, whole journey. Advisor building data tracking journey. Yeah. And there's been a lot of them. <laughs> but I think the two that come to mind were uh one kind of kind of where the uh, we had the idea for Molly to become the CEO was the weight, the weight of expectation and um, getting these advisors excellent reporting, how we were doing it, how we had the business structured. There was a point where, um, and I had a, a uh, eight-week-old daughter at the time, and uh, I just hit this point where I'm like, I'm selling the company. I'm over it. I can't do this. I don't, I don't want it. I don't just like take it. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs have been there. I just want to go be in a van down by the river. I don't want to do this. And a really good friend said, what do you love about it? Like, what do you love? And I listed off the things I loved. And she said, then create that company and do that in the company. And I said, you're totally right. I have the power to do that. <laughs> and, and so that's, 
when this whole new awakening came for me to, I do exactly what I love. And I, and I, I mean, there is stuff I don't like to do, but it's just part of it. But that was a low point was just the pressure I put on myself to be perfect for everybody and to give them exactly, you know, all the things and to not let them down. And not that I felt like I was, it was just the constant pressure to do it and to keep performing at a hundred. So that was, that was really, really hard. And then, um, you know, there've been other points throughout it where we feel, you feel your capacity, you know, like the balloon is just so, so, so tight and you're not sure it could hold that much air. And, but then it ebbs and flows and our team is amazing and we all keep it in perspective. We all keep a good sense of humor. We all laugh. And when things are really busy and all of us feel like there's 500 things on our plate, you know, every once in a while, we'll just be like, take tomorrow off. Like, I understand that business is is important and it's really stressful, but mental health and emotional health and wellness in your family, if that's broken, it's going to come into work. (laughs) And so when things get tight and when they get stressful, and they do inevitably, we're really, really good about creating space. Um, I don't know if that answers the low point, but I think just, you know, any, any sort of, when you feel like the balloon is about to pop is a hard spot to be in. So what, what was causing the balloon poppy feeling just like big growth spurt or like big problem that hit or losing people? Like just what, what got it out of whack? Good question. It was kind of all the above. We had a big, we had some big growth spurts. We were working on automations, but they weren't there yet. And so there was still a lot of manual stuff going on. And we had, wow, I counted it up for them. I think we had five people. We had one long-term employee leave. That was really hard, but we still have a great relationship with her. She just went somewhere else and kind of had some other stuff she had to do, um, professionally that she felt called to. So it was great, but it was so hard to have her leave. We hired someone, they didn't work out. We hired someone else for another position. They didn't work out. So training is hard (laughs) when you hire staff Mm. and they weren't a plus. So here we are with a lot more clients trying in the middle of creating automations. And all of us are trying to train new people and they're like C players and not playing. We had someone quiet quit on us and it was really really hard and everyone, I mean, we'd all show up to meetings just tired and just saying like, okay, like just get done what you got to get done today. This will end. Like this will end. And it did. And we're coming out of it. And it's, uh, it's, you learn, you learn a lot and you grow a lot closer as a team too, when you have people who are in it with you. So are there things you do differently now in the, I guess, like the hiring training process to get better a, a player fits that get up to speed and don't quite quit on you? Yeah. I went in and created a ton of workflows and process, you know, my little internal brain mm-hmm. created mm-hmm. just a ton of workflows and processes that because our team in the past had worked together so long, it was kind of one of those, we all understand it, but it's not documented anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I sent the last like court last quarter of last year. That's all I did was just processes and and honing in our CRM and and truthfully swallowing some of the pills that I t- 
tell people to do, you know, and, and it's always that, um, always a bridesmaid never a bride or I don't know the saying, I can't, I'm blanking on the saying, but, um, I always go with the, uh, Cobbler's children have no shoes. There you go. <laughs> they're, that they're much better. Oh. Yes. So that was my job, and that has helped a ton. And also from the hiring process to not hire out of stress or fear, and and being okay with getting rid of somebody if they're not a good fit. Like you know, you know, pretty quick in. If it feels rocky and they're not good, to just say no and rip the band-aid off. And I know everyone wouldn't agree with me there, but from my experience, we can we can tell in the first three months if it's just not gonna work. And yeah. you know, just yeah, saying I, no. I find I find it similar. Like, you know, people can have varying degrees of bumpy third first 30 days because I think they're just trying to get oriented and figure out how it flows. And some people pick things up a little faster than others, but like by, by two months in, they should be starting to get the gist. And so by three months in either they're really getting it or like clearly on the rise of getting it or they're not. And like, if they're really not getting it three months in, it really usually doesn't meaningfully correct itself later. Like just it, it ends out being bumpy for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I don't like having the hard conversations. So Molly has the hard conversations. <laughs> um, so she's helped, you know, she's, she's been one that's like, how are they doing? Are we, are we in or not? And uh, she has a lot of hard That's a powerful thing when just you, you know, when you have someone else that can on the team who can do the hard conversation, if it needs to happen. So just you can, you can separate yourself of, I don't have to be the one that has to have the card conversation. I just mm-hmm. need to be the one who makes the right call for the business about whether this is the right person is really freeing. Mm-hmm. If you're in the business owner position, you're not good at having those conversations. Just means you have to find someone who's good at those conversations. And then, right. And I'm fascinated that there are people that are, you know, I mean, that mm-hmm. we're all unique and I'm yep. so thankful that there are people that can. Cause I get really awkward and squirmy and it doesn't come out right. So it, uh, I'm so thankful for that too. Yeah. So anything else like, you know, now that you wish you could go, go back and tell you from five, 10 years ago, as you were just like starting into this advisor world and nerdy data journey. Hmm. I would go back and say, keep being curious And there really isn't a right way to do this because what I'm doing and what track that advisor is doing is so like, we're on an Island, man. Like no one is doing this in the industry. And I was so concerned about getting it right and getting it perfect. And I think I would have come to a lot of the realizations I, I did. And, and really the bottom line is data and data storytelling and analytics. It's ever changing anyway. I mean, it, it, it's not going to stay the same. And I wish I would have known that, you know, cause I was so focused for a long time on just getting it perfect as it's not. And these advisor practices keep changing and they keep getting bigger and they keep I mean, moving over to the, the, the managed money side and the teams grow. And then the goals aren't to produce more business. It's to produce less and have more time home. And, you know, I, there's all these things that just are ever changing. And I, 
mm-hmm. didn't quite capture that and I wasn't quite okay with that. And now I am. I think I've just, but some things just come with time. You know, whether you tell somebody something a million times, you got to just wear the shoes for a while, I guess. Mm-hmm. So on the advisor end, like what advice would you give younger, newer advisors like coming into the industry today and maybe like well, wanting to get this right, but not necessarily being, being ready to, to pay mm-hmm. $600 a month for it? Mm-hmm. Where, where, do they, where do they start if they're not quite at your level yet? Honestly, just write down the leads that are coming in your office. Like write their names down on an Excel sheet and put whatever notes you can on, you know, when did they set? Did they keep it? Are they coming back in? And potentially their marketing funnel. I have a guy who who heard me speak years ago and he he's a sole practice. He's a smaller firm and we've talked several times and he's like, I still remember you teaching us to do that. And I have my Excel sheet and I write it down and I do all this stuff. And I love that for him. You know, he's not at a point where it makes sense to spend the money and that's fine. But I wish for any advisor to just start somewhere because they all feel like they don't know where to start or that it's going to take too much time. And I promise you it doesn't. It takes 20 minutes a day. So start and don't let it get too big without knowing it. Well, and I'm, I'm struck, like, almost all the data points you talked about, uh, just pretty manageable for us. Like, if you just start capturing, like, just how many leads did you get and how many had a first appointment? Like, cool, you can calculate a stick rate. Like, of the ones you met, how many close? Like, great, you can calculate a close rate. Okay, average uh, client size is pretty straightforward. Cost per client as long as you're somewhere capturing what time and dollars you're spending on marketing strategies, you can do it. I would think the like pending days process probably takes a little, like you got to get clearer on your process and the exact steps of the process. So you can measure from each incremental step of the process. Like I can envision that that might be a, a little harder for some advisors to, to track if they're not necessarily as process oriented in the first place, but just, names meetings closes money and you get like the bulk of the statistics that you were that you were talking about particularly because it's just you tracking yourself mm-hmm. yeah you can get you can get all of them and it's so freeing and and sometimes they want to just do numbers in their head of okay i had five appointments last week and i think three of them kept and i would advise against that but put the actual names down because you forget. And th- and that's circling back to what you're talking about earlier is certain people stick out in our head. And the busier we get, we just forget those random one-off leads, but that affects the data. So don't do it by just numbers. Put the names down the second they come into your office for a meeting. And that will at least be a, a visual reminder too to figure out what happened or to call them, right? If, if they fell off the... the mm-hmm sales process and and you're just looking at numbers, we're not going to remember to call Sally Smith. So what comes next? Continued growth. And we are really, our huge initiative this year is integrations and really helping people who have these big systems to get something that's automated. I hate that Mm. they have to fill things out twice. I hate it for their team. And I always have. Um, So that's, honestly, like our biggest directive this year is 
making it so we they don't need the, to spend the time to double enter data. And we've already got some really good plugins going, but we're, we have a lot more coming. And uh, and that's exciting for my for my organized personality type heart for them to get it a little bit nicer. But that's it. I mean, continued growth. We want to be known. I want again, my, my biggest goal is just to rewrite the narrative of data for these advisors, for them to understand that it's not hard to get. You don't need a 5,000 data points to run a really good, efficient practice. And if you know benchmarks and you know the KPIs to look for, you're also not going to feel as inferior as Joe Schmo, who's at the event bragging about a 50% close rate. Um, so I guess next is just continuing to bring mental freedom to these advisors so they know what's going on in their practice. They can adjust and pivot if they need to, but also just feeling sound and secure in what they're doing. So as we wrap up, it's a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that always comes up is the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so you're on this wonderful path of growing successful business, frankly, focusing on marketing data for advisors to grow their successful businesses. So like business growth is going well. So how do you define success for yourself at this point? For me, I deemed a while ago that the top things that I want to do every day would just be time with the Lord, running, time with my family, and work. That's it. Four things. I just very, very simplify my life. And if I can do all four of those things every day, that's success. And not have to worry about the chaos and the busy and, you know, meeting with a bunch of people. Um, I like to live a quiet life and I do a lot of things and, and I'm achieving a ton of things, but it doesn't have to be loud. And it can leave a mark and it can be really powerful, but I want to live kind of this steady, you know, room for quiet, room for laughter, time with my kids, enjoying my employees, loving my clients, um, whether track that advisor becomes well-known around the world or not, that, that to me is success. And I'm living it right now, but I want to stay pretty honed in on that. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Well, I, I hope we get you some some good opportunities, but not too many. And folks that <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll the, automate, Michael. <laughs> we'll just, just just more automation options. Growth is really just one giant automation opportunity at the end of the day. It right? is. It is. I read um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. Have you heard yeah. of this book? Yeah. Okay. He has a quote that says, We do not rise to the level of our goals, we fall to the level of our systems. And I said, mm-hmm. Oh, so yes. Hey, we get more clients. That allows me to make more systems. I love it. I love it. I love <laughs> it. Thank you so much, Erica, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for asking me. It's been a pleasure being here. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com 
where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.